this morning. We, uh, on Sunday mornings this spring, have been, although it doesn't feel like spring today, right? What is going on? Um, this spring we've been t- in the series called The Great Exchange, uh, where we are looking at how humanity, how you and I have, um, in what the Bible calls the fall, have exchanged um, what's good for what's evil. We've ch- exchanged what's true for what's false and a lie. We've exchanged what's beautiful for ultimately that which is ugly and, um, and which mars God's good creation. And so, um, and so we're looking at the depths of, of how far uh, humanity has fallen from God's good intention when he, made a, uh, when he made the human race as his image bearers, as those in intimate relationship with him. But we're also seeing just how great the salvation, the, the saving work of Jesus is, that he has come to undo every effect of that fall. That, that he has, he is, we're using some of the languages, the fall is that first exchange, and where we've exchanged what's true for, for a lie in the, in the language of Romans 1. But in, in Jesus, he's come and he's taken our place. And so we have this other great exchange, this greater exchange, the second exchange, where, where, we, where Jesus takes, gets what we deserve so that we can get what he deserves. That he has come to live the life we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died so we can be accepted again, so that we can be received as God's friends, adopted as his children in relationship with him. And we're asking that God would, as we're considering this, that we would, um, first of all, worship, that our love for Jesus would just, would grow so much stronger and hotter and, and burn brighter because of we see all that he's done for us in Christ. We also want to ask, you know, are, is there parts of that fall? Is that part of that, that marred human nature that I'm still living in? That I haven't fully, have, are there parts of my life in my heart where I haven't fully embraced all that Christ has accomplished for us? And so um, we often use language like the already but not yet. We, um, we are already holy in Jesus, as believers in Jesus, but not yet fully in our lives. We're of the already but the not yet. He's, he, you know, in Christ, all of his benefits, all of, all of um, that Jesus has accomplished is ours if we put our faith and trust in him, if we're followers of, of Christ. And yet, in our daily practice, we need to work it out. And he's working it out progressively. We call that progress, that, that process, sanctification. And so we're asking that, that in, this, in these number of weeks that we're looking at this great exchange, that we would not only grow in our, in our love of Jesus and all that he's done for us, like in last week's language, in the atonement and in justifying us and reconciling us to him and saving us, but, so our love would grow, but also our practice, our walk would grow as well. A couple of weeks ago, Jeff asked you to imagine your ideal room. Remember that? He was talking, I forget what he was talking about. Um, just, just like you do. But, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But your ideal room, and he was talking about how it could grant your deepest wish this, in, in this room. I'm going to go a little bit different. I want you to imagine in your home, your apartment, your house, your townhome, whatever it is you live in, I want you to imagine the most disgusting place in that home, in your home. It's not hard for me to, to figure out 
We have four little boys with really bad aim. You know, the space behind the toilet. No matter how often we clean, it's got to be, you know, the most disgusting place in our home, right? It's that place where if you would happen to drop your toothbrush there, it's like buy a new toothbrush. There is not enough sanitation, you know, there's not enough disinfectant in this world to salvage that toothbrush. You need a new one, right? That's the place I want you to picture, Because the effect of the fall we're talking about this morning, envy, is that part of your heart where there's just, it's just gross. Envy is just the place where, you know, all kinds of other things fester in your life. If, If you allow a place of envy in your heart, you're allowing all kinds of other disgusting practices to, to flourish in your heart. And so, as I've said, sanctification um, is, is our effort by God's grace to clean behind the toilet of our heart. We, we want to remove the muck and the mire that still inhabit the dark recesses of our own heart. You know, but what I want us to see and what we, what we always have to remember is that we can... Humanity is always... Um, falling off the way of Jesus on one of two ends, right? Either the end of religion, we're either, we're either tend towards legalism and religion, or we, or we fall off the other way and we're like, let's fully embrace who we are and our, you know, whether you call it irreligion or licentiousness or whether, whatever it is you want to call it. And so in legalism, as we, as we expose some of, the dark, as some of the dark parts of our heart, the disgusting parts of our heart are exposed, legalism is really just attempting to clean behind the toilet without any disinfectant at all. And so you're just taking a, a rag and you're just smearing and rearranging all the gunk around. Licentiousness is really just embracing the gunk, going back there and having a snack. Right? It's disgusting, but that's what sin is. Sin, that's what I'm, we're asking, Lord, would you open our eyes to see sin as that disgusting? That, that, you know, just outright, out and out rejecting you, Lord, is like going behind the toilet and having a snack. But we don't want legalism and we don't want, we don't want religion or irreligion. We want gospel-driven sanctification. We want to take the disinfectant of the gospel of Jesus, the good news about who Jesus is and all that he's accomplished for us, and we want to use it to make the place behind the toilet sparkle again. And I'm convinced that if that's going to happen in our heart, one of the things we're going to have to deal with is this sin of envy. We'll talk about it a lot. Edmund Spencer um, depicts. This is, he's a 16th century poet, and he's got one of one of his his poems um, is a depiction of each of the seven deadly sins. Maybe you know you've heard of the seven deadly sins. It's not most people think it's in the Bible. It's actually not in the Scripture, but it's based on a lot of stuff that is in the Bible. But in Edmund Spencer, he depicts each sin as performing different actions that reflect that sin and and riding on an appropriate beast. And so, for example, sloth rides on a lazy donkey. Gluttony rides on a filthy pig. Lust rides on a bearded goat. Greed on a laden camel. Wrath, a fierce lion. Envy rides on a ravenous wolf. 
a ravenous wolf. And then pride, of course, rides in the chariot that's pulled by the other six. But in in that poem, um, Spencer depicts envy as a man with cankered teeth, chewing on a venomous toad, and poison running down his jaw. He wears a many-colored robe. He's, like I said, riding on a ravenous wolf, and he hides a deadly snake close to his chest. Inwardly, he devours himself, weeping over the wealth of other people and rejoicing in their misfortune. Envy grieves at the happiness of others and spews spiteful poison and abuse on others. There's a long history in in, um, Christian thought of depicting the seven deadly sins as, as some creatures, and envy is always the most ugly. And the most gruesome. So what is it? What is envy? And my hope as we consider envy this morning is that we would see it as just so terribly ugly. And actually we would have a desperation to flee from it. And to be free of it. Envy flows, I think, out of pride. Like many sins, most sins do. Remember, we were talking a few weeks ago on pride, and I said, and quoting C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis said that pride is essentially competitive. That there's that pride has a competitive nature to it. And in its essence, pride is competitive. And he said this, he said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next guy. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. And so envy comes when pride is wounded. Envy comes when your success tells me that I have failed. Envy comes from this belief that I'm competing with others and when I lose, I feel worthless. There's some components of envy. Envy starts with this really corrupted desire that we, we, we have a over-infatuation, over-desire for something, that we've elevated something, whether it's looks or whether it's success or whether it's notoriety and fame or whether it's um, money, whatever it is, we've, we've, we desire that thing more than we should. And so then, secondly, we compare ourselves with other people with respect to that thing that we overly desire. And then thirdly, we become preoccupied with the advantages that other people have in those areas. And then lastly, we get angry at the blessings of others. Os Guinness says, traditionally, envy was regarded as the second worst and second most prevalent of the seven deadly sins. Pride is the first. Like pride, it is a sin of the spirit, not of the flesh, and thus a cold and highly respectable sin in contrast to the warm and openly disreputable sins of the flesh, such as gluttony. Its uniqueness uniqueness lies in the fact that it is the one vice that its perpetrators never enjoy and rarely confess. You see what Os Guinness is saying there? He's saying, you know, uh, it's one of the quote-unquote respectable sins because no one can really see it. Right? You can be a hypocrite. You can, you can make yourself seem really holy. It's not like you're drinking and dancing and chewing and going with those who do or however that line goes. Um, it's, not, it's not open, out and out, observable sin that makes you look bad in front of other people. It's internal, right? Envy's internal. 
He says it's that, that, that um, last line there. says it's one vice that its perpetrators never enjoy. Right? Like most sin, you know, there's at least some enjoyment at some level for some period of time, right? Overeating, whatever, right? There's usually some sort of enjoyment for a moment. But envy, a perpetrator of envy never enjoys it and rarely confesses it. When's the last time you've confessed to someone, hey, I'm really struggling with envy, really struggling with envy? Guinness continues, he says, Envy enters when, seeing someone else's happiness or success, we feel ourselves called into question. Then, out of the hurt of our wounded self-esteem, we seek to bring the other person down to our level by word or by deed. They belittle us by their success, we feel. We should bring them down to their deserved level, envy helps us feel. Full-blown envy, in short, is dejection plus disparagement plus destruction. Dejection, disparagement, destruction. Envy always makes you more miserable. Envy, in fact, says you can't enjoy... Envy doesn't allow you to enjoy anything in and of itself. Envy makes you unable to enjoy what's right in front of you. You're unable, if, you're, if, you're, if envy has a hold on you, you're unable to sit down and enjoy the moment. To rejoice in what you have. Envy's always finding faults. This isn't good enough. It's not good enough. Envy is finding faults and will look for faults. Envy looks backwards and, say, and says, I would be happy if things were the way they used to be. Classic biblical example of that is the Israelites. They're in the, you know, if you know the story, in the Israelites, they were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Hard labor. Remember the story of Moses. Why was the story of Moses miraculous? Because the baby boys were getting slaughtered. Hard labor, forced labor, killing off the baby boys. But God, in miraculous ways, leads them out of Egypt, right? Passover, and the Red Sea parts, and they're in the desert. They're in the desert, and God's miraculously providing food for them called manna. And there's a point in in the story where the Israelites say, we're sick of this manna. We remember back in Egypt, we could have cucumbers and leeks and onions We could have as much food as we wanted. And they're reminiscing about forced slavery and the time when their children were being slaughtered because they don't like this bread-like food that they have now. Envy. They become envious of the situation in the past. Envy looks back and says, I would be happy if it was just the way it used to be. Envy looks around and says... You know, if I had that situation over there, I would be happy. If things were just like this, or if things were just like this, then I'd be happy. Adam and Eve are in paradise, which sounds like a pretty nice place. And the serpent comes and says to them, Adam and Eve, can you do anything you want? Can you do anything you want? 
Well, no, we can't eat from that tree. Well, I bet you that's the best one. And sin enters into the human race. Friends, we convince ourselves that we would be happier if things were just like this. If things were just a little bit different, if my situation was just a little bit different, then I'd be happy. But if you were in paradise, the Garden of Eden, you would be able to come up with a better set of situations and say, I would be happy then. Envy looks back. Envy looks over side to side and say, if, if, then I'd be happy. Envy looks forward and say, if things will only play out like this, then I would be happy. But not the, not the way they are right now. Happiness eludes me right now because I need this and this and this and this to happen and then, and then I'd be happy. Envy focuses on the flaws. You're unhappy with the person you're married to. You're driven in your career because you're unhappy with the rung of the ladder that you're on right now. You're unhappy with the way you look in the mirror right now. So you have critical spirits towards others. Maybe that's why some, some of us struggle to even ever join a church. Because all we can see is the flaws. Some of us are in a constant state of midlife crisis. Always seeing the flaws. And I'll only be happy if this flaw gets dealt with first. Envy is actually fundamentally opposed to love. It's fundamentally opposed to love. You cannot love someone and be envious of them at the same time. 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter, right? Verse 4 says, love does not envy. Love doesn't envy. Because to, to, to envy someone is to say, you know, they have, they have things better than me and I wish they didn't. It's not, just, it's not just coveting. It's not just I want what they have. It's like, I want what they have instead of them. Instead of them. You can't love someone and envy them at the same time. Covetousness just wants what the other guy has. Envy is angry that they have it. True envy, too, another thing to, to uh, pay attention to about envy is that it usually thrives among peers. You're probably, most likely, envious of people who are more similar to you, who are in similar situations or similar careers to you. The biologist cares most about the honors conferred on the other biologists. The pretty woman is more likely to envy a great beauty than the plain woman is. The child cares more about his classmates' height and strength than about his teachers. The farmer, envious of the acreage of another farmer. The family, the mom or the dad, envious of the situation of another family in a similar situation. That's envy flourishes most among peers. I hope envy looks really ugly to you right now. I hope it looks ugly. And here's the truth. The, the, the scriptures teach we're all susceptible to it. We all have it. It's a, it's a poison that's affected all of our hearts. And as much as we want to convince others or convince ourselves that that's not something that we struggle with, it's not something that we deal with, I would never be. We all are. We're all there. We're all infected. 
what's the root of envy? Second thought, really briefly. What's the root of envy? What's, what's underneath envy? What's leading us to become envious? And I think what, what actually is what, at the root of envy, what is ultimately the cause of envy, is that we don't trust God. We refuse to actually trust in God. We don't trust that God is out for our best. We don't trust his promise that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. Envy says, if I only have what God has given me, I can't be happy. And so it's a refusal to trust. Envy says, if I were to trust in him completely, that would not be enough for me. Now, this lack of trust, that again, you can either be really religious or irreligious about this. Again, our lack of trust, our failure to trust, our refusal to trust in God has religious overtones, religious expressions, or irreligious expressions. You can do it either by a religious person says, um, you know, religious people always feel guilty, right? If, if, if you're a legalist like me, you always have this low-grade sense of guilt that's driving you. And the, so in religion, you say, well, the gospel says I'm accepted only by grace, only by grace, only because of the merits of what Jesus has accomplished, only because of what he's deserved. That sounds too easy. I better supplement that a little bit and be a really good little boy. And your religious person says, well, I, I can't trust in God. He, he, obey the Bible? Give my money away? Pray every day? I'll be miserable. Both ways. What we're expressing is that if we just trust in God completely for our present situation and for our future situation. If we trust in him completely, it's not enough. We won't be happy. He won't provide for us. God wants, he's not really all out for our best. It's not really, he's not really interested in our flourishing. And so we go and we try to find satisfaction in other places. But these other things never actually satisfy. So what's the cure for envy? What is envy's cure? I want us to look at a passage in 1 Timothy, and I want you to turn there because I want you to work through this passage with me. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Turn there if you can. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the pew um, in front of you. It's red. Hard to miss. So turn to 1 Peter near the end of the Bible, chapter 1. And we're going to start at verse 22. And again, it's really important uh, one of our goals as, as a church is that, is that we all as disciples of Jesus would learn to mine the gold out of the scriptures, would learn to, to hear from God through, through the scriptures and understand and apply what the scriptures are saying to us. Right? That's, that's the goal, is that you would be able to feed yourself, that, 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 that this time wouldn't be the only time that you get a, a message, you get, you get a word from God on Sunday mornings here, but rather that you would hear from him 
And so we want you to, I want to work through this passage with you. And, you know, sometimes people say, you know, hey, Kevin, I love your preaching. It's real meat, which is a way of saying, hey, it's something to chew on. It's strong and whatever. But the truth of the matter is, is my preaching is milk because I've been chewing on it all week. Right? That's what a mother does. They eat food, chew on it all day or whatever, and then it's processed and becomes milk, which is able for the... I don't want to get too graphic here, but... I'm treading carefully. But that's what I do, right? I, I'm wrestling with this all week, thinking it through and asking the questions of the text. And what's it saying? What are you saying, God? How does this apply to us? And then I present it to you. And that's, that's, so it's, hopefully it's meaty. Hopefully it gives you something to think about. Hopefully it's true and all that. But our, our hope, our desire for you is that you would come to the scriptures every day and say, Lord, what, what are you saying to me here? What are you saying to me? So I want to model that a little bit, if, if you'll allow me here. So let's work through this text here together. Starting in verse 22, 1 Peter chapter 1. All right. I've never done this in a public setting before, like on the spot. I don't even have notes about this. It just says, expand. My notes say, expand this passage. So I'm a little nervous. Bear with me. Now that you have purified yourselves... By obeying the truth. What's obeying the truth? You should ask that question in the text. What's, what do you, Peter, what do you mean? God, what do you mean by obeying the truth? We'll come back to that. So now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, so this obeying the truth has led to something, right? It's led to having a sincere love for your brothers, comma, command now. Love one another deeply, from the heart. For you have been born again. Right? This is the same thing as being purified yourselves by obeying the truth. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. That last phrase, and this is the word that was preached to you, Greek text, other translations, and this is the good news that was preached to you. This is the gospel. This word, it literally says, this word is the gospel that was preached to you. This word is the good news that was presented to you. All right, let's think this through a little bit. So we've been purified by obeying the truth. We've been born again by the, through the word of God. And this word is the good news about Jesus that was preached, that was proclaimed, that was told to us, and which we received. And we, how do you receive the word? We, we try to say this all the time. We receive it by believing it, by trusting in it, by emptying ourselves of our own merits and our own accomplishments and performance. We simply receive all that Christ has accomplished for us. And so by obeying the truth, is obeying the gospel word which says believe on Christ. Trust in Jesus and you will be saved. This is the command, First John says somewhere, that you believe on the name of the one he has sent. So obeying the word, obeying the, the truth is to believe the gospel. And so by being born again, by having yourselves purified through faith in Christ. It leads to sincere love for your brothers. And he says then, it leads you to 
so that you have sincere love for your brothers. So you're beginning to love your brothers and sisters, your fellow human people more. Now it says, love one another deeply from the heart as a command. It's like, you've already begun to love. You've already begun to love uh, your brothers. Now love one another deeply from the heart. Again, why? Because you've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and enduring word of God, which again is the gospel word that was preached to you. We've been born again. Don't miss that little word for there at the beginning of verse 23. Why should we love one another deeply? Because we've been born again. By the word of God. By believing the gospel. Now, chapter 2, verse 1. Again, in the scriptures, chapter divisions, pretty arbitrary. Um, it, it said that uh, they were actually divided. I don't know if you know this story, but it was divided up by a guy who was riding. A, he did it while riding a horse. He's going on a long trip, and he's like, I want to divide up the Bible so I can you know, organize it better. And, and, and so he did it while he was riding a horse. And the joke is, is that the horse could have done a better job than he did. So again, don't let chapter, the fact that there's chapter 2 here um, disrupt the flow of what Peter is saying to us. It says, so again, you've been born again. You've received the gospel word. It's, so now you should love one another. Therefore, therefore... An old pastor I used to have said, whenever you see a therefore, you have to say, wherefore is the therefore, therefore? What's the therefore, therefore? Why is there a therefore? Well, so it's always referring back, right? Because you've been born again. Because you're called to love one another. Because you've believed the gospel truth. Therefore, rid yourselves, which literally is a word saying, take off your clothes of malice and deceit. In hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. So how can we love one another deeply from the heart? As verse 22 tells us to. How can we love one another deeply? By putting off malice. By ridding ourselves of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. And what's, what's the, what, what, what keeps these things together? Why these things? Why malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander? Well, they're all directed, right, towards some... I think they're actually all um, kind of just defining malice, right? Deceit and hypocrisy, which is another way of deceiving, right? Pretending, I want you to believe that I'm something that I'm not. And envy and slander, which really is envy in action. He's saying, rid yourself of that. How? How can we rid ourselves of envy and malice and deceit and hypocrisy and slander? Well, it says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. What's the milk? What's the... That's referring back to the word of God. Crave that pure spiritual milk, the word of the Lord that stands forever. The word through which you've been born again. The word, the gospel word that was preached to you, that you have believed, that you have obeyed. He says, like newborn babies, crave, long for, desire, deeply long for, and desire, and want, and any other word that means want and desire, right? Spiritual milk. So by it, you may grow up in your salvation. Growing up in your salvation. Notice, I... I drew attention to this earlier, but in 22, 
It's like, it says, you've purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Now love one another deeply. It's like, you love, now love. Right? There's, you are doing that, now do it. It's the same thing. That's, that's the, the same um, sense here. So that by it, you may grow up in your salvation. That's growth in your salvation. It's becoming what you already are. Becoming what you already are in Jesus. In practice. You are holy. Now be holy. Right? You, you, you are pure. Now become pure. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. That tasting has to refer back to this milk, right? That the Lord is good. That he's merciful. That you've tasted his mercy. That you've tasted his goodness. That you've tasted his kindness. How do you get rid of envy? How do you get rid of malice and deceit and slander and all of these ugly things that we don't want to fester in our hearts? How do we, how do we get rid of them? By craving spiritual milk and tasting of the Lord's goodness, tasting of his kindness, tasting of his mercy. Focusing on all the things, on all the ways the Lord has been good to you. Focus in in his word on all the ways he's been kind to you. Focus on all the ways he's expressed mercy towards you. When you long for that, when you crave that, and you taste that, when you taste his goodness, and you taste how he's been so merciful to you, isn't that going to make envy taste so bitter? Isn't gonna, that going to make deceit and slander and hypocrisy just taste so disgusting? When you focus in on the miracle of his mercy and on the miracle of his goodness to you, Lord, Lord, you have been good to me. You have forgiven all of my sin. You have accepted me in your presence. You have not only accepted me, you have adopted me as your child. You've said that if you're, you're for me, and so who can be against me? So why do I want a bigger house? Why do I want more money? Why do I want to look better? Why do I want what they have? I have you. You've provided me yourself. You've given yourself to me. And you have embraced me. How does he do that? How does he embrace envious people like you and me? Who are expressing our lack and our refusal to trust in him and what he's provided. Who are expressing our dissatisfaction for his work in our life by envying. Right? I hope you can see that envious, envy is, is really a, is a rebellion against God. Saying, I, I'm not satisfied with what you've given. Because I want that. And you're not fair because they've got what I want and I don't want them to have it. I want to have it. Well, there's this beautiful little verse, this little phrase in Matthew chapter 27, verse 18. Jesus has been arrested by the religious leaders. And he's before Pilate. And it says that Pilate knew that it was out of envy. It was out of envy that they had delivered him up. 
It was out of envy that Jesus was delivered up to die on the cross. It was our envy that led him to pay the price for sin. You see, you in our envy, you and I, Tim Keller says, we look past the good to hate things. In our envy, we look past the good that we have in order to hate things, in order to hate the way things are right now. But he looked past our evil to love us. We despised him, but he refused to despise us. It was out of envy that he was given over to death. Both Matthew and Mark say this. And so, friends, if you cannot enjoy with gratitude what God has given you, you've forgotten what he's done for you. And so First Peter would say, how do, you, how do you slay the dragon of envy? You focus in on all of God's blessings. All the, 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 the word of the gospel word that was preached to you, that you have received. And so how do, you, how do you foster love in your heart, to love one another deeply? Well, you can't envy them. And when we focus on all that God has accomplished for us in Christ, and the, 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 the sin of envy can be cured in us. Charles Spurgeon says, The cure of envy lies in living under a constant sense of the divine presence, of worshiping God and communing with him all day long. True religion lifts the soul into a higher region where the judgment becomes more clear and the desires are more elevated. The more of heaven there is in our lives, the less of earth we shall covet. The fear of God casts out envy of men. And so as I, and as you and I focus in on the miracle of God's kindness, of his mercy, of his goodness to us, we don't need to grasp for the talents and for the gifts of others. I don't need to covet my neighbor's spouse. I don't need to covet my neighbor's house. I don't need to covet my neighbor's family or his ministry or his opportunities. I'm not defined by the abilities of others. I'm defined by the grace of God. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Therefore, I will refuse to measure myself by a false standard. I will resist the compulsive and relentless urge to compete with everyone under the sun especially those who are called to do the same thing as I am. And I'll put to death the malicious dreams about the downfall and the failure of others by savoring, by, by, by tasting the sure knowledge that God has lavished in his grace towards me, that he has promised to graciously and to freely and abundantly give me all things in his beloved son. That's how you slay the dragon of envy. You've, you've, you've given me your son. What else do I need? What else do I need? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us today. And we pr- thank you most of all for the gift of your son, Jesus, who is that great savior, who is that perfect redeemer, who has fully entered into the depths of our fall, so much so that our envy put him to death. So that the one who never envied, but the one who lived a life of gratitude and trust, in his father, that his record could be ours. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a savior you are, Jesus. And we worship you. And Father, I'm, I'm asking that each one in this room today would um, be able to worship you 
in fullness and in, 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 in a deep and lasting and abiding trust in you. Father, I pray that sin, the sin of envy especially today, would look extremely ugly to us and, and repulsive. Especially as we see your goodness and kindness in Jesus. So open our eyes, each, each one of us, open our eyes to see just how great your grace is. So that we could receive from you your kindness and your mercy and your goodness. For we pray in the name of Jesus.